everyone. Welcome back to the program. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. I'm here with several members of the POSNA QSVI initiative. I guess that's redundant, the Quality, Safety, and Value Initiative. We've got this special episode to uh, discuss the PSSP, the POSNA Safe Surgery Program. Let's go around real fast if everyone could introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Bob Cho. I'm the chief of the uh, uh, LA uh, or Pasadena Shriners uh, facility. I'm a pediatric spine surgeon, and I have served on the Boston board as a communications council chair for the last three years. And they only let you serve for three years, and then they fire you. So uh, I have been. I will be fired as of May. Uh, it's been a real honor to serve on the board uh, and to see what POSNA is all about. I think it's really cool to see basically how POSNA works and how POSNA serves its members. Really, POSNA is something that is created for, obviously, patients, for science, for what we do, uh, for patient advocacy. But really, it's a, it's a membership where uh, we get to know each other and care about each other. POSNA really cares about its members, and it's really been a privilege. It's been a privilege serving with Brian and Kevin, and it's been a privilege serving with Callie and Carter as well. And you guys have been in my committee, and uh, I can't wait to serve under you and whatever whatever committees or councils you lead in the future. I can't wait to follow in your footsteps and uh, get fired. <laughs> yeah, so my name's Callie Tylston from Stanford. So I'm lucky enough to have some fantastic mentors. Bob Cho just happens to be one of them. But at Stanford specifically, I have Kevin Shea, who the PSSP program is his brainchild. Um, and Steve Frick is also there. So I've had some great mentors there. I am the vice chair of advocacy right now. Um, and so this has sort of been something that I've been taking on and working with the QSVI team to sort of get off the ground and make sure that it goes smoothly as possible. Brian Brighton in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, at Ortho Carolina and Atrium Musculoskeletal Institute. I have been involved, as uh, Bob and others have mentioned, you know, with the POSNA board as a member at large several years ago. Again, if you do a bad job there, they throw you off in two years, not three. But um, I will be coming back on as the QSVI council chair and taking over for uh, Kevin Shea with some big shoes to fill and have been involved with QSVI as the education committee chair the last several years and really have been involved with quality uh, within pediatric orthopedics for a number of years with the American College of Surgeons, their Children's Surgical Verification Program, as well as NISQIP and the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program. So again, as, as we mentioned, this Posna State Surgery Program is, is just sort of taking off. Mike Vitale, Kevin Shea, and a large group of the members that have been involved with QSVI have really been instrumental in developing this. It's been really a group effort and something to be enjoyable to be part of. Fantastic. Last and not least, and maybe least in need of an introduction, is uh, Kevin Shea from Stanford. Hey, uh, Carter, great, great to be here and, and fun to join all of you and talk about it. And I'm actually really glad that um, there, there's a group of us talking about it. And as Brian said, uh, it takes a community, it takes a village. And, um, you know, I've been on the board. I started as a, a member at large in 2014 and then have, have been on since that time and, and evolved through the QSVI. It was a committee and then we were asked to make it a council. So I was in, in charge of that transition from committee to council. It's now the largest uh, council in POSNA, which is fascinating because I think it represents POSNA's and its members' commitment to quality safety value, that it's now become the largest group and lots of work. And it takes a large number of people in all the different seven committees we have to get things done. 
Prior to that work, I served almost 10 years on the American North Peak Surgeons. It initially was called the Quality Committee, and then it evolved, had a couple different names, eventually became the Evidence-Based Quality and Value Committee, with evidence being a big part of that focus. And that includes the development and supervision of clinical practice guidelines, appropriate use uh, criteria, and, and, and started some of the work and uh, foundational work on performance measures. And so I had a 10-year run on that that overlapped with QSVI. I've been a member of QSVI since it started. I think it was about 2014-15, a brainchild of Peter Waters and Jim McCarthy and Jack Flynn and, and others. But those are people who felt we needed to do this in 2014. And it uh, was quite different, but also parallel to what the Academy did. So it's great to have the experience with all of those individuals groups. And as Brian and others have said, the POSNA Safe Surgery Program, I, I tell people all the time, the first answer is always no. And I talked to Jim McCarthy in 2015 about, because the Academy was looking into some of this type of work of certifying centers. And I asked Jim, I said, Jim, do you, do you think we could ever get POSNA to start doing this work? Similar to what American College of Surgery has done as official group, U.S. News and World Report is doing as an unofficial group, if you will. You think POSNA could ever do that? And he said, I just don't think that could really ever happen in POSNA. There's just too many <laughs> obstacles for that. And so that was 2014, 15, when the committee started. But I thought that was something we might eventually want to move towards. And, you know, here we are, fast forward six, seven years later, and the first answer is always no. We get from no to let's talk about it. It was almost two years, two and a half years of discussions with the boards. Uh, many people, Brian, other people on this call, Mike Vitale, quite frankly, without Mike Vitale's philosophical commitment and his shoulder and his willingness to lean in and push hard, uh, we wouldn't be here, but there's Brian Brighton and Nick Fletcher and Matt Ochin, and, and I could go on for 20 minutes, the number of people, Terry Stack, just so many people who have allowed us to get to the point where here we are, we're not launching a demonstration program last month. So great to be here. Well, I am really excited to talk about this and, you know, this uh, sort of the whole realm of QSVI. Some of us are really into it and read about it in our free time, but for a lot of people, I think this remains sort of a black box in our field and a lot of terms that sound kind of abstract. So I'm really excited to talk about the PSSP, which is really sort of a, a concrete thing in this area. Um, would you mind giving the background, the audience just a little bit of background about, you know, concretely, what exactly is the PSSP? What does it mean for hospitals that are participating? Yeah, and uh, PSSP, the acronym is POSNA Safe Surgery Program. Initially, it was Safe Surgeon Program, but we recognize early on that healthcare is such a a highly matrixed environment, like we say at Stanford. Everything's really interconnected. And it's not just the surgeon that does things, it's the team. And so we changed it to pause the safe surgery program early on. We recognize that we're part of a very carefully, highly matrixed team, but we play a major role in that. And so it started out uh, with that focus, in particular, how can surgeons be empowered to make better programs? There are lots of groups trying to, to evaluate organizations, evaluate quality, evaluate safety, evaluate, evaluate value. And there's different approaches people take. U.S. News and World Report and other organizations, they like to rank. And there are some values to ranking, but I've kind of learned in the quality world that ranking, for a lot of reasons, doesn't always work very well. Partly, it's hard to rank. The accuracy of data we collect, whether it's for NISQIP or CMS or Medicaid, it's hard to accurately collect data. There's a lot of variation in how we collect data, but it's also very hard to risk adjust. And between the data collection and the risk adjustment piece, we can do it, but the resources to do that are very, very significant. And quite frankly, we don't have that as a country yet. I think EMRs are going to help us get there, but that's not a great way to solve that problem right now because I think a lot of those measures are somewhat spurious and the rankings really aren't reflective of the work that's being done in the organizations. And so 
partly was the logistical challenges of doing this adequately, but also philosophically. I, I feel philosophically that ranking programs, not that competition is bad, competition can be very good, but I felt that this ranking, this U.S. News and World Report ranking, I think many of us would look at that, and, and Todd Milbrandt and others have done some nice, elegant work on how valid, how reliable, how evidence-based some of these measures are, and there's some real problems with them. Not to be too critical using U.S. News and World Report, but that primary goal of I'm one, you're two, you're three, you're four, it's just not a great scorecard. And I think culturally, it's not a great way for us to get there as POSNA members. I also think of what POSNA is committed to in our mission statement. We're not a group of pediatric orthopedic surgeons. We're the Pediatric Orthopedic Society. We're here taking care of our patients and families and communities first and foremost, and we'll take care of our surgeons as well. But our focus is on our patients and our families and the community. That's our, real, that's our real focus. You look at our mission statement, you look at our priorities, where we spend our money, that's clear priority. And so I felt that trying to give surgeons a way to improve the local environment in which they provide care and give them the resources they need that surgeons recognize they need to get better was critical. So that was a big driver of PSSSP. How do we empower our surgeons to get resources they need? How do we give them a voice in their own health systems to advocate for resources they need? And so I think those are some big drivers. We weren't really planning to rank centers because I don't think that's something we can do reliably. Number two, culturally, I'm not sure that's the way we want to move forward. And three, I really want to empower our positive member surgeons to help us. What are the best metrics and how do we help our surgeons provide the best care possible and get the resources they need at their own institutions? Great. So PSSP is is a initiative, a program to make our surgery safer, not to rank programs, not to rank surgeons, but hopefully sort of help the tide raise all ships and make everyone better. Is that safe to say? Uh, I think that's a pretty good summary. My belief about if you create the right culture that, you know, right now we, you know, I'm trying to show you a a span here or a, a spectrum between the top and the bottom, the number one and the number 100. I would like to get to the point where the difference between the top and bottom centers, instead of being this, the difference between the top and bottom centers is so small that statistically it's really meaningless. I, I think that we can challenge all of our positive centers and all our positive surgeons to get so good together that the difference between the top and bottom really doesn't matter. And I think there probably is a little bit of a breadth right now between the top and the bottom, but I think culturally we can challenge ourselves. You know, I like this concept of what I call supportive accountability. I'm going to hold you accountable. You're going to hold me accountable. We're all going to be accountable together to get better together in a blame-free, supportive, positive environment. We're going to hold us accountable, but I'm going to do my best to support you. So I want you to get better while I get better. I don't want to become better at your expense. I don't want to become better and get ranked above you because I think of us all on a team and the whole team needs to come up together. And so the number one versus the number 100 doesn't make sense to me. I want all the positive centers to move up together. Got it. And so can you take me through some of the basics of this program? So the audience knows, as a full disclaimer, I am by far the uh, most uneducated, clueless person on this call. So hopefully I can ask some uh, questions that uh, help everyone understand this. So my knowledge of this is basically reading some of Mike Vitale's letters that have gone out through the POSNA uh, channels and reading uh, in a little more detail the most recent updates that have gone out through social media about the program. So my understanding is there's basically a survey or a questionnaire that goes out to pediatric orthopedic departments, whether they're an enormous department with dozens of surgeons or a couple people in practice together. And there's at least five different questionnaires for different specialties, one for hand and upper extremity, one for spine, one for sports, one for hip, 
lower extremity, and then one for trauma. And these questionnaires are, are very simple. They're four to five questions. And so can you uh, sort of take me through how this affects a program? You know, do they fill out all of these? Do they choose which ones they want to be involved with? And then what happens with that information? Uh, all thought on questions and back up a little bit about how we develop these metrics. And we wanted to make sure from the beginning that PSSP was a program for everyone in PASA. This is not just for big major centers with lots of resources, lots of administrative support. This is for all PASA centers. And so from the beginning, we included small, medium, and large centers at the design phase when we looked at metrics, what would work, what wouldn't work, as we refined our metrics in all of those domains, including hand, upper extremity, hip, lower extremity, trauma, spine, and sports. As we looked at all of those domains, we wanted to make sure that groups felt that these were reasonable things for potentially the smaller centers, the medium centers, the large centers, academic, private, and, and, and those in between. So we had a lot of feedback from different groups representing those, those stakeholders uh, if you will. We try to pick four to five metrics per uh, per those uh, d- domains. So we have about the same number in uh, each area. We'll probably have a neuromuscular group in the next year because we think we need a neuromuscular group that probably upper and lower extremity didn't quite fit conveniently into those other ones. So that may be a year from now, but we wanted to make metrics that that most of us could, could buy into. There are There are five domains and you can apply for one, you can apply for two, three, four, five. And it's, uh, you can get a pause and a safe surgery designation in any of those five domains. As you uh, brought up, it's a survey. We spent a lot of time thinking about the questions, and there's questions you ask and answer, and they're usually fairly simple yes/no answers. But we also uh, ask people to provide clarification. So, if you have a program for trauma, what type of trauma certification do you have for people who take pediatric orthopedic call in your service? We ask, do you track that? And if so, please describe how you do it. So that's an example of one of those metrics. You answer yes or no, and then we ask you to give um, give a description. There are other people involved with this. In particular, we've got other people on the call. And I'd love to reach out to Brian a little bit. And maybe, Brian, if you might want to fill in on some of those questions or, Card, if you have a question too for Brian. But Brian has been, basically from the start, Brian has been, uh, watched this evolve from a, a, an idea to a vision and, a, and now something that's going to work. Brian may have some other ideas or feedback. So, Brian, please take the next question. I'd like you to give some input as well. Yeah, perfect. Um, so before I do uh, ask another question, let me just give the audience an example, if that's okay with everyone. Um, for example, the questionnaire for the safe surgery program for trauma, the questions that you would fill out, you know, let's say I'm doing this for uh, our children's hospital here in New Orleans. The first one is, does your institution have a mechanism to minimize doing trauma cases after hours? Yes or no? And then please describe it. Does your institution have a system in place to manage Patients with a disvascular limb, yes or no, and describe it. Um, another one, do you collect complications and review them? You know, Do you have an M&M, I guess, in other words, or some other format? Yes or no, and describe it. Uh, is there trauma-specific CME for those people taking call? Yes, no, and describe it. And uh, do you have an antibiotic protocol for open fractures? Yes, no, and describe it. And then they also ask what percentage of patients with open fractures uh, receive that or receive that, let's see, within one hour of presentation. So, uh, yeah, Brian, I, I would love if you could shed some light on sort of how this came to be and sort of what happens when these when I submit these answers to you. And let me run, remind the audience, this is all early on. This is all in beta testing at a few centers. Uh, everyone can't just sort of jump in and submit these yet. But when we can and when I fill this out and send it to you, what sort of happens to those answers and what's the process? Yeah, thanks, Carter. Um, you know, as Kevin mentioned, we're 
piloting this really to sort of work out some of those kinks and and going back into the metric development, you know, looking at those five domains, we really went to creating some, the easiest things to sort of look at are process measures or do you have these things in place rather than making it onerous for centers to track specific data. But you mentioned that one question about trauma and then we've you know, put a couple others in some of the other metrics as well as say, is there some that we can actually start to track some important data and start to look at that and get some numbers around that as well as we build this program. So I think that'll be important if we find some data elements and to actually even maybe use those as evidence-based and, and maybe drive U.S. News and World Report and other quality uh, surveys that are you know, looking at pediatric orthopedic programs. But going back, it, it, this is really on an honor system. Uh, we're asking people to upload some data, whether it be a protocol that they have for a dysvascular limb or an antibiotic protocol, perhaps, you know, a schedule for, you know, multidisciplinary conference. And so I think it's not just in terms of the, the surgeries that you're doing, it's showing that there's a, a hospital-wide and a system-wide commitment to various aspects of care within pediatric orthopedic uh, surgery. So I think that's, a, that's an important part of this. Again, you know, to go out and actually verify programs like the American College of Surgeons does for trauma programs, and to go do that for these the newer ones that are out from the American College of Surgeons and the Children's Surgical Verification. We don't have the resources to do that. We don't really have any, you know, authority to, you know, verify places. So this is truly voluntary. And again, going back, it, it could be a large department that could satisfy all five of these, you know, domains. But, you know, at a Shriners Hospital that doesn't have a trauma program, maybe it doesn't make sense to either invest the effort to move towards that trauma metric, but a smaller center that only has two or three surgeons in a, in a private practice that work at a children's hospital or a, a children's hospital within an adult center may be able to satisfy, you know, a spine requirement and something else. And so we've really given people a leeway and a lot of latitude here to decide which metrics they want to go after and which ones are important to them. And so I assume the vision is for this to become an attractive thing for hospitals, maybe even for patients who look at their hospital where they're going. And so how do you envision this playing out? The, a hospital would be certified by POSNA as meeting this criteria, and then that's something they would potentially have on their website. Uh, where, where do you see that sort of going? Yeah, you know, certification and accreditation are, t are complex terms. And so we have to move carefully in that. I see Brian Rankin shaking his head. Certification, accreditation, uh, those are complex terms. So that's something we're going to have to think about going forward. But our, after we get through this test program, I think that would be the goal where we would uh, allow hospitals or POSNA to have some type of POSNA safe surgeon designation for hand, for sports, for spine. And I, I think one of the biggest values we see for our members is that if you don't have the resources you need, but you want to get them in place, you may use this as a lever against your institution. Say, we want a pause and a safe surgeon or safe surgery program designation for hand. These are resources we need to meet that. Could you help me get a hand therapist to help with our hand program? Or could you help me get a neuromonitoring team, the state-of-the-art neuromonitoring team for my spine program? Because I think that's one of the challenges with some of our surgeons and programs is we don't always have the leverage or influence with our health systems to get the resources that we would like to have to provide better care. But Brian, any, any follow-up on that? We've really been careful about a couple of things. We haven't used the words ranking 
We really haven't used verification or certification in this. We've really used sort of the terms sort of designation or recognition for these hospitals. Again, to as use of some leverage for people who are interested and engaging their administrators or engaging a team of uh, folks around the hospital to get involved with this. And again, we'll take sort of Kevin's analogy of, you know, taking the hospitals and, you know, ranking them one to a hundred or stretching them out on a, a bungee cord and just lifting that cord, right, to just raise uh, some of those hospitals. Everyone is going to benefit from that, whether it's at the top, in the middle, or the, at the bottom. And I think as we'll continue to raise the quality across our institutions, if we're just setting some baseline expectations of what's expected in a quality pediatric orthopedic program. And there's not one member in, in our society who I think would disagree with that, that they want the best care for their for the children that they're taking care of. That's great. You know, I think we all learned about the Hawthorne effect in med school or studying for the OIDI, and we, we've also seen it in registries and, and groups that collect data just like this, that just the simple act of measuring things and knowing you're being measured does lead to improvement. So I think this is a phenomenal start. So one thing that struck me looking at these questionnaires, like we went over, is just how simple they are. You know, as a positive member, it makes them very attractive. It's almost a no-brainer when possible to try to go through that process for... um, I don't want to use the wrong word here. Recognition is, is that the term? Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. It, it is. I, I think, and that's why you know there's a beta testing period. Um, obviously, we want to get the kinks out, make sure that this is truly attractive. I mean, right now it seems attractive, but there are things that uh, I think each center is going to bring into it in the beta test to say, well, this works, or maybe this should have more weight, or maybe this other thing should. And you know, I think the power of this is that I think Kevin is the one who taught me this. If we're not the one judging us, someone else will. And we really should be holding ourselves accountable um, to each other for what we do. And and that's why I think this is great. Um, You know, we're going to try to get on board as soon as we can. And uh, I I think that POSNA as a society, all of our sites really should try to get on board. It's really something that is attractive, like you said. So, Callie, we haven't heard much from you. Could you tell us a little bit more about your involvement and um, maybe how you see this not just being a thing amongst, you know, affecting us as providers, but how you see this affecting our patients? Right. So I was uh, brought in because as part of the advocacy committee, really the whole point of this is to improve care for all of our patients. And so even the larger centers may not be able to meet all of the metrics all at once, but it's the QSVI teams did an excellent job sort of really parsing down what was important for our patients in their surgical care pre and post-surgery and what would be really important for all centers to have if we're going to be sort of centers of excellence all around. So we also wanted to create metrics that aren't necessarily chip shots. I know that we're all friends and we all, everybody wants to be a part of it, but we want to make it so that it is something that is really going to improve our patients' care throughout their hospital stay with us. And in smaller centers, we wanted to make sure that they have the ability and the network that's available to them so that if they don't have a multidisciplinary conference, they can create one. And then there might be other centers where a spine surgeon who's the only spine surgeon doing deformity can call into another pre-op conference so that they can discuss those cases. And so creating this network that's available that will sort of 
help all of us as surgeons and as caregivers for our patients, um, I think is really important. And that's sort of the point of this whole program. Perfect. Before I ask another question, I just want to give the audience even more sort of uh, concrete examples. So I, I briefly ran through the trauma questionnaire. And again, this may all change or change slightly after the beta testing. But here's another example. This is the the hip or lower extremity questionnaire that uh, a hospital or pediatric orthopedic department would be asked to fill out. Question one, do you have a multidisciplinary, do you have multidisciplinary communications for complex hip and lower extremity issues? Uh, number two, do you participate in a quality improvement uh, initiative or a registry? I'm sorry, that's number three. I missed one. Number two, do you have a protocol for timely access to care for these patients? And then number four is do you have a, a protocol for uh, DVT screening prophylaxis and treatment? So again, relatively uh, straightforward things that we would all probably like to have. And if we don't, ha- if we have them, easy. If we don't, it's a great impetus to start developing those things and improving and monitoring ourselves. Brian, my next question, you know, I, I think the people who follow um, sort of the QSVI world closely know that when we try to figure out how well we're doing as providers, um, like you said, the easy thing is to measure our processes and see if we're checking all the boxes. But the sort of holy grail, the goal is to measure our outcomes and see if we're really doing a good job, not just setting ourselves up to do a good job. Like you said, and like Kevin said, this is just so complex. You know, like maybe if we had ESPN's resources figuring out our stats, we could actually do that. Um, But how do you see this and these metrics that we're using changing in in the next 10 or 15 years, if you do? You know, is that something that you guys have sort of talked through and considered? Yeah, we, I, I think as we've talked through this, you know, the first steps are the process measures. And then even even getting to some data-driven measures is a little bit more challenging. We don't want to make it too onerous. Just as we go back to symmetric development, each of those questions that you're saying, while they say yes or no, there was, you know, in the little guidance below them, there's some intent. What was really the intent of that variable development? Why did we do that? And then giving some sort of examples or criteria to meet that yes or no criteria. So a center just can't say, oh yeah, we have that because we do this. Or it's really, you know, putting some, you know, putting some examples and and giving them some examples to work with. Do you have this or not? Or what, what could you do to develop that metric? So going back to that. But to answer your question about outcome, what we started to do as well and some of them are where there are registries available, some quality registries, whether it be in spine or sports, are people participating in them and contributing data to them? And so those people who are are starting to get some data back, some performance data, not necessarily outcome on their patient, but some performance data. And I think we're, you know, a little bit of ways of how do we track the, you know, the outcome and the value portion of the uh, quality vision um, in this, in the, with these metrics, but we may be, you know, using PROs and other things down the road, certainly you know, costs may come into this as well. And so this this could easily evolve to something. And I, I imagine this will morph, if, you know, as time goes on. I, I think that's a really brilliant solution, honestly, that you guys came up with. You know, we, we want to be collecting hard data, patient-reported outcomes, real meaningful outcome stuff, but we want to make this user-friendly. And the sort of happy medium that it sounds like you found of saying, 
if you're collecting that data and putting it in some other registry or collecting it some other way, you get credit for doing that. That's really clever. That's great. A great stepping stone to where this will hopefully go. Kevin, sort of same question for you. Where would you see this in, in 10 years? How do you see this evolving? Yeah, um, Kurt, I think there's a couple of things that sort of every day I get up and I think about this. I think of the what is the value equation in healthcare? Um, it's outcomes divided by cost. And we all know it sounds simple. And it is simple, but it's also incredibly complex. And because it's not that we don't know what you know outcomes and, and cost are, the problem is the ability to measure them. And we are just, we're, we're pretty well in on this in orthopedics. We've got a fair number of general health care, general health questionnaires. Promise has been very helpful there. We've got them for kids and adults. And we're getting, I think, more reliable and valid disease-specific measures as well. And we're going to need more of those. But I think in my vision, eventually we collect general health questionnaires of every patient who comes into the healthcare system, and we collect that at various different stages we consider to be appropriate. Uh, we do this electronically, and we also, when appropriate, we collect disease-specific measures as well, knowing we've still got a little work there to do to get those to the point where they're reliable and valid and, 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 and worth collecting that data. But I think if we can do that, that's going to be very valuable for us because I think the future, we're, there's going to be a competition for value, not for volume. And we all talk about that, but that's where our healthcare system is moving. We have healthcare systems that are 50% or more in per member per month contracts where the health system is taking risks for the outcomes of the patient. So we've got to start measuring what those outcomes are, both general health, but also disease specific measures. Our health systems, we've got to encourage them to measure costs because health systems don't do a very good job. We, we don't have good supply chains. We don't have good supply chain analytics. Uh, we don't have good ways to track our costs. And I think the more we improve our healthcare system's ability to track costs and give feedback to surgeons. I mean, how many of you know how much it costs you to do a clubfoot cast or a clubfoot surgery or posterior spinal instrumentation infusion? Most of us don't have very good ideas. We may see charges, but the reality of it is, is, is charges and costs are so divorced from each other. The health systems are going to have to give us more granular data to help us make better decisions about values. Um, so I think those two things, the value the value proposition, we hear it all the time, but it's really outcomes divided by cost to determine can we get better outcomes at the same cost or better outcomes at lower cost or the same outcomes at lower cost. But we've really uh, got to focus on that. I, I think the other thing we have to do, I, you've all heard of HROs, uh, highly reliable organizations. We have this for the most part in the military and in nuclear industry and mining and railway. We're not there yet in healthcare. We're pretty reliable, fair amount of the time but we're nowhere near as reliable as those other organizations. And we're a lot more complex. We've got to become an HRO, uh, healthcare, highly reliable. But to me, it's not enough to be an HRO. We have to be, I call it a hero organization. We have to be highly effective, efficient, and reliable. And we haven't really focused on those. Safety and reliability are critically important, but we've got to look at effectiveness and efficiency. And that gets down to, are we measuring pros? Are our patients getting better? And are we measuring our costs? Efficiency and effectiveness. So we've got to be Hero, almost with two E's, H-E-E-R-O organizations going forward. And as we collect better data and our EMRs help us do that, imagine a world 10 years from now where instead of 20% of our patients, 85% of our patients log in with this. We find out what their general health is. We fill that out ahead of time. They fill out a, a disease-specific measure if we can find one before they come in. And before we even come to our clinic, we sort of know, hey, they got real problems. Their, their promised global health is terrible. There's some psychiatric issues. We got to, it's not an orthopedic problem, at least primarily. Imagine if we had that, we would make better decisions and we could then monitor how our patients were doing. And then we have the orthopedic specific procedures. Imagine if we got to the point where 
everyone's doing this before they show up and we've got data on their cell phones. It's pushed into our record and we have that ahead of time. Quite frankly, 10 years from now, maybe it's seven or eight years from now, but that's where I think we're going. And if we got our, got our health systems to start measuring the cost better and share that information with our surgeons, I think we're really going to really approach that value proposition, which we all think of it as the holy grail, but I actually think we're closer to that than, than we are. I think it's going to be in all of our lifetimes. Everyone on the screen here, it's not going to be after our grandchildren get a health care. This is going to be in our own lifetimes. Well, first of all, let me say you must have more productive mornings than I do thinking through this stuff while I'm stumbling to the kitchen trying to get coffee. Um, and second, it makes me feel hopeful for our field that you're out there thinking about all this stuff. When you guys have went through this and you looked at all these other groups collecting similar data, was there sort of a gold standard? Was there anyone that you looked at and you said, they're doing it right? Or does POSN need to fill that gap? Has no one really figured it out yet? Brian, you, you, you jump on that first. I might follow up. But Brian's got a lot of background with the American College of Surgeons, and they've been doing some really good things. You know, some of this came out of the American College of Surgeons. A little bit of this format came out of the American College of Surgeons. They have a number of verification programs that they do for general surgery, bariatric surgery. They've gone even into, they have cancer. They have, they've gone into even emergency general surgery type programs. And then they started this children's surgical verification program just for specifically for children's hospitals. So I've been involved with this for a number of years. And like I said, I've been involved in NISQIP. And so, you know, we took some of the elements of what they are doing in terms of verification across trauma centers, uh, what data are they collecting? Are they using a data set? They're, a lot of them are using NISQIP or they're using their TQIP data and, and trying to develop that. I think we've also seen it too, you know, in our orthopedic specialty with the development of registries and the importance of that. And I think that's how a lot of our hospitals and our orthopedic colleagues are, are starting to track quality data. When you look at U.S. News and World Report rankings for orthopedic hospitals, a lot of that is automated data that is going back to CMS, and they're just publishing that and getting the, you know, the results there. Whereas in, if you've been on, you know, the committees in your own hospitals that look at U.S. News and World Report data, it is, uh, you know, it's up to some interpretation. You are digging through some charts at times. It's not a very easy process. And so there's a little latitude there. And so we were trying to find something that was a little bit easier as we develop this, that's going to have some meaning, not just sort of filling out a survey, but we feel strongly that if you're doing, you know, these four or five metrics in each of these things, you're contributing to a quality program in, in each of these fields of ortho, pediatric orthopedics. I think that's awesome. So going a little bit beyond this program or maybe to the sort of future of it, you guys have all thought about this a lot. What's sort of the dream for, let's say, for your hospital, for your department? So Kevin, you sort of mentioned it, the audience couldn't see it, but he was holding up his um, smartphone saying that patients will be using this to fill out questionnaires before they come into clinic to give us to give us information. We'll know how they're doing all the time. Is the dream promise questionnaires through a smartphone? Well, so patient, you know, patient reported outcomes, they really are, how our patients are doing is incredibly important to how, how well we are doing surgically. And so I do, I don't think it has to be promised, but understanding how our patients are doing both pre and postoperatively is important and tracking that over time so that we can go over that with them when they come in. Also, I think I want to highlight what uh, Kevin and Brian were saying is that overall the program is very dynamic. So we are in beta testing, but 
I, my goal is through my lifetime, this continues to change and improve. And as the bar gets lifted, then we lift it even higher. And so I don't see this as a static program and something where we just rest on our laurels. Once we get there, um, we're going to continue to lift each other up and make things better. Yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, in, in part because I, when I was at the academy doing clinical practice guidelines and AUCs, the criticism from the insurance companies, they would say, you in medicine, you want to make metrics that are so easy to clear that every orthopedic surgeon is going to get a 98% score or a 92% score. And the insurance companies say, we want some people to fail. We want to push people to get better. And so I, I think your point is a really good one that we're going to set metrics that we think are reasonable, but we're going to keep raising the bar and get better that whole concept of supportive accountability. I want to get better every year. I want a little more feedback. I want to know what I get. What's next? Okay, we've met that. Okay, what are we going to do next year? How are we going to get better? Yeah, and we're all naturally competitive, I think. I think when we see where that we're not hitting some standard, you know, we're, we all want our centers to hit those standards. Um, and also, I, I think when you have, you know, just with the outcome scores with the patients, patients, I think if you present the outcomes questionnaires in the right way, I think they're more than happy to fill them out. I mean, in our medical center, I think our acceptance rate for patients coming in to actually fill out those promise questionnaires, is like 95%. And it's because they really want to be involved in care. If you tell the patients, um, hey, you know, what you're doing, you know, filling out these questionnaires is going to make, um, you know, us better. And it's going to make us do better surgery um, more of the time for patients. They, they want to be part of it. So I think, um, you know, we want to keep each other accountable, but the patients want to be part of that process too. Callie, what do you think about that? Do, do you have other ideas for how we can... Uh engage our patients with these surveys and these questionnaires? So we've started a big push for patient-reported outcomes at our institution. And it is challenging to get off the ground, but really it's more of an institutional getting it off the ground. And once you get it going, patients are very happy. And then, you know, it loads into Epic and you can track over time. So it's not just surgical, but back pain patients, patients who had ankle sprains. That way, when they say you know, you can really show them over time, are you doing better than you were when I first saw you? Preoperatively, you were doing, you were here and we addressed your problem and now you're here. So you're either doing better, worse or the same. And how can we address what problems you have remaining to make you even better if there are any problems remaining? So I think presenting it to, as Bob said, just presenting it to the patients is this is how we sort of help you get better over time. Um, it's been very well received and we have had very few patients who have rejected it and sending it to directly to the smartphone. Um, our patients fill it out on the way. They get an email like the day before and when they're registering for their appointment, they just go in and fill it out and then it's already in the chart and we can go over it with them as soon as they check in. So, you know, the smartphone has been our friend uh, with the patient reported outcomes. Carter, the other thing I think we, we talk about personalized medicine and customized medicine. And sometimes I think we base that based on a, a belief in genetic differences we'll be able to identify. And some genetic profiles may do better with one medication versus another medication or one surgery versus another surgery. I actually think pros are going to allow us to further move into this customized, personalized, specialized medicine where we recognize certain people need different resources to get the same outcome. And I'll give you an example. If I've got a patient who has an ACL reconstruction, one of the biggest risks for ACL is a stiffness, especially we're learning young women's and they may approach five to eight, maybe 10% of young ACL females get stiff. 
if I had a way to look on their pro, they're filling out their pro once a month and they send me a picture of their knee motion and algorithm says their knee, their knee flexion is 70 and they got a 15 degree flexion fracture. If I can immediately flag that, they get more physical therapy time. They get an early visit to my clinic and we're very proactive on that ACL. That's a great way, I think, to provide this personalized medicine. And then for the 90% of the other ones that don't have that problem, we don't necessarily have to uh, waste unnecessary resources, extra clinic visits or physical therapy resources. I think we're going to get better outcomes from our patients. And I think, as Callie said, I think patients appreciate that we want to know. If you're not doing well, I want to know as soon as possible, and I want to intervene as soon as possible, bring my resources, bring the team, whoever, to get better. And if you're doing great on your own, fantastic. Just keep us up to date. But the ability to have customized, personalized healthcare by responding to pros, both general health ones and disease-specific ones, I think that's going to help us really approach this personalized, specialized medicine that's perfectly designed for every patient. Different needs, different outcomes. We'll get good outcomes in all of them. Right. It'll really let you identify, is it pain that's holding the patient back, anxiety, a challenge with mobility? And so all of those things that you would refer your patient to somebody else for all of those different things. And um, it also gives us some ammunition when we go to our hospital administrators that, oh, well, you know, we are an orthopedic clinic, but maybe we should have a psychologist in there to help these patients work through these things or have it available to them. And um, if we do have these pros, then we have that available to us as another thing that we can look at when we're helping our patients. Carter, another thing, I, just a reflection of David Ring. David Ring has said for quite some time, he's a hand surgeon down in Austin and a really remarkable thinker about trends in, in many things, including healthcare. He thinks the biggest revolutions in orthopedic care and perhaps all of medical care over the next 10 to 20 years are actually not going to be technological breakthroughs. There'll be plenty of those. There'll be incremental. There'll be some big breakthroughs, but there'll be this slow, progressive improvement. He thinks the really catastrophic or very remarkable breakthroughs are going to be communication skills and communication exchange programs between patients and the physicians. And he thinks as we completely revolutionize the way we communicate with patients, we're going to get better outcomes. They're going to be more bought in. We're going to better understand what they need. And he thinks that will lead to the real advancements in improved outcome. You know, one of the reasons very early on I got Bob and Callie involved is they really understand a lot of the elements of communicating with patients, but also communicating on a broader scale, you know, communications council, but also communications with patients. And they recognize how the world is changing, how we as physicians have to be able to communicate. And I think Bob and Callie's perspective and input to this positive safe surgery program, along with everyone else, is going to be really important because we really want to engage our patients in this process as much as possible. Perfect. Uh, well, before we wrap things up, what would you like the, the audience to know, the surgeons out there? You know, I myself am going to be anxious and waiting for, to get through beta testing to put this stuff into practice. Is there anything else you'd like the audience to hear about the uh, positive safe surgery program? I mean, I think this in and of itself is almost a quality improvement program, right? And so it's an iterative process. We want to hear about it. We want to know how to make it better. And, and we're rolling this out again. We talked about rolling this out on a large scale. And one, to collect the data on a massive level, I think would have been difficult. And that's why we're starting with just a, a number of centers. Folks that have been involved in it and then going to sort of work out some of those kinks before we roll it out on a mass scale. And so that's that's why we have done this, but we hope to do that in short order and then really roll out a uh, robust program that everyone can be participating in, providing some feedback and really drive this forward over the next several years. 
Is it too hasty of me to ask when we might be considering rolling this out and you know, POSM members could be looking for their chance to, to try this at their institutions? The, the POSM board uh, approved a two-year demonstration project. And so we're going to give, as the, the data comes in, we'll give reports. I hope to have uh, enough data in to give a report by the May board meeting. Um, and we'll try to update the POSM membership through various different formats, perhaps annual meetings if we have time or enough data. IPOS meetings or town hall meetings. Uh, so we'll try to keep you up to date, but we, the board committed to a two-year demonstration project. Uh, I suspect next year's version is going to be a little different than this year's version from what we've learned. If they're comfortable, perhaps within two years, we'll consider rolling this out to the rest of the membership. Maybe in the second year, we might broaden it a little bit, but we, we didn't want to have too many people too soon because we know we're going to have some growing pains and we're going to have some mistakes and we're going to learn and get better. So we've asked all board members to participate, which I think is 20-some members, the QSVI council chairs, which is seven. Uh, and there are we asked a couple centers, uh, some of the smaller centers, who were very involved from the beginning of designing and reviewing the metrics. We wanted them involved as well. So we've got probably 30 to 40, somewhere in that range, to go through the first year, or first two years potentially. And But we'll keep you posted. We want the membership to know what's going on, and we want feedback. But Brian said iterative. This will be a very iterative process. And I think, once again, Callie and Bob are going to be critical for how do we communicate with those members? Callie's put together a beautiful little metric about a build kind of infographic about what this is and what this isn't. So the, the communication piece is going to be critical, probably as important, if not more important than the logistics and the details of the program is getting this message out to our members, avoiding misunderstandings. I would encourage all members even if you're not part of the beta testing, to really um, look at the different metrics. You know, in our advocacy meeting earlier this week, we found another metric that we thought might be important to include either in the uh, neuromuscular group or as part of trauma or the lower extremity group, um, and then passing that on to the QSVI team. So even if you aren't part of the beta testing group, really take a look at these, think about them, think about are there any pain points that are things that you think are really super important to create an outstanding program um, and let us know if we're missing any of those. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, the best conversations I've had around this uh, safe surgery program are the people who are a bit skeptical about it. You know, and those, uh, you know, I'm going to call out my friend Chip Winsky at Shriners in Lexington. He's like, why, why do we need to do this? You know, like we're already doing things for U.S. News and World Report and other. And, uh, you know, those are good conversations. Those are good conversations. Number one, keeping us accountable as to why we're doing it. And number two, you know, how we can essentially uh, create metrics that, you know, we all complain about the U.S. News and World Report metrics, but it's because, you know, not all of us have input into it. But the nice thing about, um, you know, having this through POSNA, we can have input into the things that we think actually make patient outcomes and, you know, centers better. Um, and I, I really think that's where the power of this is. We're all trying to get better. And these kind of conversations help the uh, program to get better. So I, I'm really looking forward to being a part of it. Um, like Kevin said, there will be some growing pains, but that's, that's why we got a trial program. Well, I think that's a perfect way to wrap up this discussion. Um, I think that's great to bring in, bring up the people who are a little bit skeptical. Everyone on this call has clearly drank the Kool-Aid. We're all clearly big believers in value-based healthcare, and like Dr. Ring would say, that we need sort of managerial and communications improvements more than we need clinical improvements at this point. And it's exciting to see POSNA leading the way. Now, before I let everyone go, I do want to take this opportunity because I think a fun, maybe the most fun part 
about doing these podcasts is to make the make our field feel a little bit smaller and get to know each other a little bit better. There's lots of people listening who I think know the names of all you guys on this call, but don't know you personally. So if everyone would indulge me. My first question for everyone is, and uh, maybe we could start with Kevin, and what is your favorite surgery? A well-done ACL reconstruction with meniscus repair is one of the more satisfying things that I do. Uh, technically, it offers some really interesting challenges, but also from a patient satisfaction point of view and getting people back to things they like to do. You, you get to do the, the really interesting surgical technique. It's evolved a lot. I do it a lot differently now than I did it 20 years ago when I was trained. Uh, and I see the outcomes and I see people getting back to sports and I see our rehab program and our therapists making our outcomes better. So I think that's probably why, because it's, it's the outcome that you see 12, 16 months later that, that, that fills that satisfaction of the actual technical parts of doing the surgery. What about you, Brian? What are you most excited to walk into an OR day for? I still take adult trauma call from time to time. So those are always present a challenge, but I like to just sit in the back of the room and direct the residents as they're <laughs> in those cases. And so that's probably my favorite case to uh, do. But if I have to physically scrub <laughs> that case, I enjoy doing uh, deformity cases, lower extremity deformity, and planning those out and starting to think about them. If I had to pick one, it would sort of be deformity correction over an intramedullary nail. How are you, Callie? Uh, my favorite's uh, taking a resident through a really hard supracondylar. That's not what I'm excited about walking into the OR for, but that makes me feel the the best at the end of the day. Um, if I'm talking about the most exciting for me the night before, probably like a 55-degree AIS patient who's skinny. <laughs> Bob, what about you? 130 degrees, morbidly obese AIS patient? <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 as a pediatric spine surgeon, I do a lot of big curves, and I take care of a lot of kids uh, from international. Love taking care of international children uh, really uh, gets me going. Love doing, like, you know, VCRs, three-column uh, reconstructions. It's uh, really three-dimensional thinking, and uh, it's exciting, challenging uh, at the same time. But, you know, when you ask that question, I really thought about what I love doing the most. It's actually trigger trigger thumb. <laughs> I almost said that, but I thought, <laughs> I thought it, it sounds ridiculous because so I'm a great. pediatric spine surgeon and I never get to do these. But if I ever get a chance to do one, it's my favorite because it's a small operation. Um, you know instantly when you have it done and it's done right, and the outcomes are you know, almost universally like good. And so when I think about like a perfect surgery, that's the perfect surgery where <laughs> you're very minimally involved. The patient gets the best outcome and everybody's happy. You know, after a VCR, I, I, I'm sore, you know, it hurts. After a trigger thumb, you know, I can get a margarita, you know? Great answer. <laughs> um, Bob, what's your favorite instrument in the OR? It's a Schnitt hemostat. Some people call it a, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a long hemostat, but the, the uh, or some people call it tonsil. I think it depends where on the Mississippi you train. I call it a Schnitt. Um, I find that to be the best instrument to pick up stuff in small places. Um, so that's my favorite by far. We called it a burlisher in residency, and I got some really weird looks after I left. Callie, what about you? Uh, baby Chandler. It will save you every time with a lateral condyle. Hmm. Brian? Um, I would have to say a sharp osteotome because I've been to places <laughs> where they're dull. So anytime I get a sharp osteotome, that's kind of nice. Yeah, dull is probably my least favorite too. Kevin? You know, I, I'm going to have to say the arthroscope, I guess, because I feel like there's a <laughs> lot of problems I can solve with an arthroscope. But I, I love all those instruments you all picked. They're all 
uh, things that I use as well, but probably the arthroscope. All right. Last question to share with the audience. If you can think of the best or some good advice you've gotten at some point, advice worth sharing. Here's uh, here's what I tell all my residents. Um, you know, I tell all my residents that you will be my colleague far longer than you're my resident. And I'm going to treat you that way. Obviously, I'm your attending and your senior. Um, and there's going to be a hierarchy. But at the same time, I'm going to treat you with respect. And I expect the same. I think when you're on that playing field, um, that lets the resident know that you're truly invested in you know their development. It's great. I, I would have to say it came from a sports medicine attending in residency. It was take every opportunity to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> um, no, but I say that just uh, for people to know me, I'm, I'm a quiet guy. But if you get to know me, I, I open up certainly more. But uh, I certainly think about things and I'm more reflective. And, and, but I do take that, uh, a lot of that advice to heart sometimes. I, I will take every opportunity to keep my mouth shut at times. My favorite is uh, the no-fly zone. I don't always abide by it but because I'm a younger uh, attending. But it's good to think about and keep it in the front of your mind. And I try to remind residents and fellows that as they're going into it, that, you know, you are an orthopedic surgeon, but you're also a human. That's been really important to me to have my mentors uh, believe in that. You know, we, we talked a little bit about teaching and mentors and colleagues, but I, I think um, at every stage in life, you should look for mentors, look for good mentors, and also look to be a mentor. Because I think at every stage in your life, you benefit from mentoring, but you can also offer mentorship to other people. So seek mentors and try to become a mentor yourself, wherever you may be. Perfect. That is the perfect Carter, way to wrap things up. To edit this, I may change my answer. So <laughs> if, you're, if you want some yes, uh, advice, and I'll say this because Callie is on this call and Kevin's on this call from Stanford, my other big learning point was uh, I got a good piece of advice from uh, Steve Frick, who's a friend and a colleague about big rocks. And so there's this lesson that he sort of teaches of filling your bucket or filling your cup with the big rocks first, what's more important and letting the little rocks in the sand sort of just fill in those smaller details. And so whether that's your family, your profession, your you know religion, whatever it may be, you know, filling it up with those things first and then letting those little details just sort of fill in the cracks. Yeah, that's great. And, um, you know, there seems to be an underlying theme there with prioritizing other people through all those pieces of advice that all, all four of you gave. So that's, uh, that's really great, whether it's family, mentees, um, that seems to be where everyone went immediately. So that's inspiring. And thank you guys all for joining me on the call. Um, it's been an honor to talk to all of you. And uh, again, everyone out there, that was Bob Cho, Callie Tileson, Brian Brighton, and Kevin Shea. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Great. Thanks, guys. Carter, good job. Nice to meet everyone. See everyone. Likewise. Yeah. All right, good night. Thanks. All right.